All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Doing well, Jeff. One of my favorite parts about this time running around for Congress is the uh, signature gathering. And it's, um, I, I don't know if I told you this personally, but it's just, it's like, it's a really good excuse to go up to someone and tell them you're running for office. And, you know, it's low stakes. You just say, hey, I'm running for office. I need to get a thousand signatures and I get on the ballot. Could you please help me? And, you know, a lot of people say yes, even though they're not really sure that there's an election. People are like, oh, is there an election this year? So it's, it's really good. It's been good, um, especially community events uh, after church and things like that. It's been really good. Let people know I'm running and I, I'm excited about that. Uh, but I, how was your vacation? How'd that go? John, the vacation is over. Uh, it ended early, actually. Uh, Tuesday, we had quite a, a lot of rain in the area. And Wednesday morning, I got uh, my wife got a call from the person who was watching our dogs to let us know that our basement had flooded. Oof. So we had to leave our vacation, drive home, and we are still dealing with the ramifications of a flooded basement. And yeah, not not the way I wanted the vacation to end. But, you know, the three days of vacation that I got was fantastic. Got some time away from my kids, got some quality time with my wife. You know, I think we read two books in our three days that we were there. We spent like $300 at the bookstore one day. Uh, we cooked dinner dinner together one night with no kids pulling on our shirts, asking us questions when it was going to be ready, what we were going to eat, and that they don't like it. Um, so that was that was nice, too. <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds magical. But, you know, what it really is, is you just got to find a way to pitch it really you just got to say kids we got the swimming pool you've always wanted you know it's it's a little shallow no <laughs> diving but uh you know it'll it'll suffice oh my gosh the house reeked when i got home with all that stale water Ugh. it's frustrating but now that the vacation's over we're back to work uh i've been reading a lot about a lot of congressional record on the uh the apportionment uh permanent apportionment bill of 1929 that's been enjoyable um, and then I read this fantastic article today by our good friend Tyler Sick on persuasion um, about the conservative movement and like a new path for it. And I reached out to him and we got him on the show today to talk about it. Uh, so, all right, we have another special guest on the show this week. Back again is Tyler Sick, uh, assistant professor of political science at the University of Pikeville. Tyler, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure. So you have you had this new article come out this week for pers persuasion, correct? Yep. Um, and I I got to read it today, and I the, the moment I was done, the moment I read it, I was like halfway through. I'm like sending it to John because I'm like John, you've got to read this. This is this is awesome. I was super excited about it. I reached out and I said, Hey, could you do the show tonight? Let's talk about this. And here we are. So. Let's let's start with the concept of the uh, what is it the conservative humanist or the humanist conservative humanist conservative humanist. Um, <laughs> I I suggested some other names the publication liked this one too so, <laughs> so your term, I, right? had a, I had a couple and then I just kind of threw them out there and I was like I'll let fate decide <laughs> where where we go but um, so that, I love that's your I term. Love, it is my term. No, that that one. Well, it's not my term actually. It's um, 
it's a term invented by uh, Peter Virick, um, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and historian and political theorist who, um, and I've written elsewhere about him. He's kind of an interesting guy. He's the one who really made the phrase conservative popular again in the United States in the 1940s. Um, because he was asked to write this article for The Atlantic about why he was a liberal. And he wrote back an art, a reply to The Atlantic, and the article, article was entitled, But I'm a Conservative. <laughs> That's the title of the article. Um, and he gives this kind of long defense of um, conservatism and outlines what it is. Um, and it kind of brought the phrase back into vogue. Um, but he never, he, he didn't really sort of keep on being famous in a, the conservative world because he really didn't like William F. Buckley and he really didn't like National Review. Um, and his idea of conservatism tended to be a lot more moderate on economics and even on some social issues. So um, he didn't become very famous But uh, after that. Um, but that's who, that's who really invented the term that I'm using. So... Um... In the article, which, by the way, I forgot the title, uh, Conservatives Path Not Taken, um, you kind of talk about what has been going on the last few years with the national conservatives. Um, and then, as as we mentioned already, this um, conservative or humanist conservative movement that you kind of outline in the article, which I really I really like. I think it's something that we are missing as a as a country. We're missing something like this to grab a hold of. Um, so. What kind of, where'd your inspiration come for this? Right, so I mean, the inspiration came from, I mean, for the last, I don't know, four or five, almost 10 years maybe, conservatism as the conservative movement and has really been at war with itself over what its future should be. Um, and on one side you have very nation, nationalists um, and on the other side you have fusionists to a kind of a combination of tr traditionalists or religious right and libertarians. Um, and they had been in power for a very long time. And I think like a lot of people have been in power that their ideas maybe have become a little um, tired. Um, and the nationalists, I think, just don't have very good ideas to begin with. Um, and so I, I was trying to formulate what um, a third path for conservatism might look like. And I guess in a good conservative fashion, I went back to the past to see what um, other conservatives looked like. And in particular, um, I talked in the article about Michael Oakeshott, um, who's a British philosopher, and Jacques Maritain, who's a French philosopher, um, and Wendell Wilkie, who of course ran for president in the, 19, in the 1940 election. But um, I think you could go all the way back to the Whigs in America, people like John Quincy Adams um, and Henry Clay, who this describes fairly well. Um, there may be a little more nationalist than this humanist conservatism, but um, traditions adapt to different times, I think. Yeah, when I was reading this, I, I could definitely feel a lot of John Quincy in it, right? Just like the this, I don't know, the, the aspect of virtue and like, right. You maybe not using government, but having government as a mechanism to progress society, at, yeah. at, you know, in a in a way, um, where I think in a lot of circumstances, and when you get to like the national conservatives movement, it's more like government bad, government can't do anything. Right. You know, yeah. As, yeah, or, or it's government to regress society back to some some glorious moment of the past, and I think we can take great inspiration from the past, but. We can't really return to the past, um, however much we might 
wish we could. Um, and you're right, John Quentin Adams inspires a lot of what I write. There's across from me, um, you can't see it on the camera, his, his really friendly and sunny visage is, is looking down at me to, even in this call, but I'm in a big painting. But yeah, I mean, I think there is this, this idea that there has to be a certain culture um, for a republic to survive. There has to be a certain um, way of doing politics for a country to survive. Um, and this isn't imposed by the national government. It's imposed from the bottom up. And I think that's one of the fundamental principles um, I outline of humanist conservatism is that all politics should begin as locally as humanly possible, which isn't to say we don't have national issues and national problems, but at the end of the day, we live in communities um, and the communities should be where life really happens. And the job of politics should be to protect those communities as best as we possibly can. Yeah, I think um, so. I was working on something the other day, and um, John's brother actually sent me the first few pages of uh, Cicero's. Uh, is it the Republic or On the Republic? And I mm -hmm. think kind of theorizes where government comes from, and it, he, I think he's he says something. It's like comes kind of from the family, and then you build oh. other families together, and you build it out that way. So like, it, like, like you're talking about like government comes from the people at, yeah. at all stages it's always people regardless of whether it's a monarchy or a republic or whether the people have a share of the power because government yeah. just concentrates the power right it takes the power yeah. of the population and then it uses it to do things it can tax the people to raise revenue it can use the people to invade other countries right it can use the people for right. labor to build infrastructure but you know, we should have our government is a government of shared power between the people and the government because we we are it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, nail on the head. And I think we've lost that, that those other two conservative movements right there, you know, have gotten a little off track, I think. Right. And the fusionists have always been localist in their way, I think. But um, I think their their biggest flaw has been that they're kind of blind to the danger of, of private authority. Um, the nationalists are, are blind to the power that the idea that government can really end up oppressing people. Um, they kind of know this, and, and they think the left does it, and so they just want to do the exact same thing on the right. Um, the fusionists, I think, are sometimes unaware of just how nasty um, private companies or private individuals can be, how nasty the influence of money can be in influencing politics, um, and that the market is sometimes left to its own devices can be kind of um, homogenizing, moving people together and erasing differences, which can sometimes be a good thing, um, but which sometimes can destroy local cultures and communities. Um, and I think the fusionists has kind of missed this um, for a very long time. And I'm not sure they ever learned the mistake, which is why you really need this third one. And to be fair, I think most voters kind of think that. So it's it's not that the fusionists are, I think, about to make some triumphant comeback. Um, later, maybe we could talk about that. There's one uh, potential maybe, but I, I'm even skeptical there. <laughs> well, I thought about the problem with markets. like. You're right. The fusionists talk about free markets, unregulation. But if you think about like we had that at some point in our country during the Industrial Revolution, and then you had the river in Cleveland going up in flames. Like you right. know, had all this like there was there was a breakdown right. in society where 
individual actors were not actually acting in the best of the industry. So I always no. like think it's always fun. Like the EPA, a lot of you know, Republicans hate it because it's just regulations, but you have to be like grateful for the fact that we have pretty clean uh, lakes and rivers now because we actually have some rules in place that says like, you just can't dump things into the Creek. Like you have to, you know, we're, right. we're making them think about that before they put whatever it is out there so that we right. all society can benefit. And I think like, that's what you're talking about. I think a little bit what you're talking about, like they're missing that, that sort of, yeah. Everything you can't leave everything to the private aspect. There is kind of a common good that gets left out in the fusionist aspect. Yeah, and I'm from Appalachia. I'm from coal country. I mean, if you, if you want to look at an example of private tyranny in America, I can take you to places where all the houses are identical, and it's because they were built by coal companies and owned owned by coal companies, and the employees were paid in money that you could only spend at the store that the coal company owned. And this was a private tyranny that existed for a very long time. Um, and I think the fusionist model is not very good at destroying that kind of tyranny. Now, you can overregulate and overtax and overspend and all that kind of thing. And I think they're absolutely right to point that out. Um, and the humanist conservatism I try to outline doesn't say, well, no, we're, we're not anti-free market, but we're, you know, for a sensible free market, for a compassionate version of capitalism that um, provides for the people who can't provide for themselves. Um, but does also try to prevent small businesses from being destroyed by overregulation on the part of the national or state government, which is a serious concern even today. Well, and it, you know, the the whole idea of like overregulation, it in a lot of circumstances, it's the private industries that kind of want the government to regulate, no. right? Like, because regulation, if you if you climb to the top. And yeah. you're able to use your influence to get government to regulate your industry, which, by the way, that's what Facebook is doing right now. They're literally putting their they're using their their money to put advertising on television, talking about how we need government regulation of social media. And so what you're doing is you're locking yourself into the at the top, you know, because now it's harder for new industry to come in and compete because now you've overregulated. And a lot of that is kind of written by the businesses funneled through the lobbyists and given to you know the representatives that end up making their way into the actual legislation right yeah i mean it, we we have a regulation that's built in a large way to benefit large companies but not small companies or small businesses which um if you believe in democracy with a small d where the people rule themselves i think if you're a humanist conservative and you believe in glorifying everyday life and small communities I mean, this is the exact opposite of what you should be wanting. You should be wanting the small businesses to be the real um, heart of, of the American economy. Yeah, I remember growing up, I would always, I think the most common phrase I remember hearing from a politician growing up was, small business is the backbone of America. Yeah, and oh yeah, I, you still hear it sometimes. And there, and. I don't know. Sometimes they say it and mean it. Sometimes I'm sure they don't, but they're absolutely right in either case, I think, to, to a really important degree. I agree. And after owning a small business for 15 plus years and then getting into politics and meeting politicians, I can tell you they don't mean it. <laughs> they they don't mean it. I'm sorry. They don't. Like I, 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 you know, good people sometimes, but they don't really mean it. What they really mean is they will do what keeps them elected, plain and simple. Right. Well, that's the problem. Like in Virginia now, we're talking about spending a couple billion dollars to move the 
Washington Wizards eight miles across the river just because you know it's a vanity project. Like talk about like small helping small businesses. Like if you could spend that much money helping businesses all across Virginia, that'd be one thing. But to um to help out a, a billionaire move his uh, sports franchise a couple miles just so he gets a nicer stadium. Like that's that is kind of that bastardization of it. Um, now you were talking about and Jeff, you were saying like in uh, Cicero's Republic, kind of the foundation of the family is the foundation of, the, of society is the family. And then you kind of build from that. And, and um, Tyler, you talk a little bit about sort of this rise of national conservatism over probably the past, I mean, Pat Buchanan is what you mentioned. That's like 30 years ago at this point. Do you think that that's kind of that rise of the national conservatism or it coming more to the forefront is correlates with like the decline of the family and sort of the breakdown of society, especially as like uh mill towns go out of business and those jobs move overseas and you have like some disenfranchisement from society. Yeah, I mean, the national conservatives, I think actually hit upon a lot of important things. So it's not like they come out of nowhere um, and are talking about issues that don't matter. I think in a lot of ways, they're talking about the issues that matter most. Um, they're talking about the decline of rural America, the decline of small business and the decline of the family um, and the decline of religion, which are all really important. Um, the difficulty is that their solutions tend to be very extreme and their view of what a family should look like or what a church should look like tends to be incredibly one-sided. So they're right that these are problems and they're appealing to people, I think, because there are real problems and they're the only ones talking about those problems. But I think you don't have to talk about the problem of the decline of the family or the decline of religion or the decline of small towns the way a national conservative does. You can talk about them in this other way, um, what I call humanist conservatism. And I, I think it's a better way of talking about it that is more, if pitched right anyways. I mean, everything, um, the ancient Greek statesman Demosthenes said that there's three keys to, re I mean, to rhetoric and that's delivery, delivery, delivery. So it, it, matter, it matters how you pitch humanist conservatism. Um, he said, but, um, uh, but, um, at the end of the day, I think it's a vision that just could be just as appealing as national conservatism actually will solve the problems better and doesn't suffer from what I think are the serious problems of national conservatism and its relationship with liberal democracy. So um, I'm I, you, you touched on something there is something that I'm reading. I, I've been going through and reading the congressional record um, for the the apportionment of the permanent apportionment uh, bill of 1929, right? And trying to figure out like, because my study of- Riveting stuff. Yes, I know. It's absolutely important. And because what you just, what you just said, what where the national conservative movement um, kind of comes from of this, like the problems that they talk about are real, right? It's just that the ideas don't necessarily have them and the thing is, like, I think it kind of started around that time period. So I was reading and like, listen to, I, I don't have the person's name right here, but they're talking about how apportionment should be counted, who should be counted for the purposes of apportionment. And what was happening at the time is the demographics in the country were shifting dramatically because of immigration and large corporations needed <laughs> lots of laborers. And they brought them in and you had a concentration of people in cities, which shifted uh, representation away from rural areas and too much metropolitan areas. 
Okay. And so this is one of the, the senators debating this and he's talking about the immigrants and, you know, a little colorful language here, but uh, they come from the riffraff of the old world from them uh, recruited the gunmen and the gangsters. They not only come in violation of our laws, but bring with them a contempt for American institutions. Right. And it goes on. It kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Uh, and it goes on and kind of, it, his his debate here is our founders did not intend for us to count non-citizens for the purposes of apportionment. And because he said, what is to stop a territory from being overwhelmed by a large number of foreigners that come in and want to and then gain representation to change the American institutions? Right. And I we didn't really solve this problem during this debate, obviously. We just decided to put a cap on the house and move on. But I think that that's like this idea of like, who is an American citizen, which we've talked about before when it comes to like the 14th Amendment, and what are their rights and who has a right to representation? I think it kind of all stems from that, you know, those unanswered questions um, in our governmental process. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting you said when you read that article, it's like it's not as though we haven't heard things like this recently. Um, and I think the national, you're, you're right, this kind of national conservative impulse um, is reactionary. Um, when things are changing quickly, um, there's always a hunk of people who hate it. And sometimes they're right that things could be changing in a better way. Um, but they always, there's always a hunk of people who really hate the change. And uh, they some many of them will go too far and be too drastic and too uh, what's the right word uh, extreme i suppose and their opposition to change entirely um and that's that's often where you get the most problems because even when, when they're in power and they attempt to address the change they usually do, the change is going to happen whether they want it to or not is usually the end of, the end story um, and by opposing it, they actually just mess up policy and in fact make the change far worse because you don't have the change being gradually adapted to society. Um, so, you know, is America's industrial economy ever going to be revived? I mean, maybe not. Um, automation is the bigger threat, not globalization. And that's a serious problem. The national conservatives are not particularly help. They don't want to talk about that. They just want to talk about going back to the past. It's not a very helpful way to frame the issue um, at the end of the day. And that's always the problem, that the decline of the family. Um, are gay people ever going to stop getting married in the United States? Probably not. So talk about the issue in a more helpful way if you're a national conservative, if you're concerned about this sort of thing. Don't oppose every change. Try to adapt the changes to what you think is going to be good for a successful, flourishing society. And that's where the national conservatives drop the ball. They're capable of doing that, really. So one of the things you talk about as a source for this humanist conservatism is this idea of Christian democracy. Like the, and I, to me, I think of like the German Christian Socialist Party, or I think that is even like a Christian Democratic Party. But um, you also made the the point that you don't have to be a Christian to be a Christian Democrat, and that's. That when I read that, that hit with me because um, further down you said like Cicero is kind of one of the sources of this, and the book on duties, which I like to mention a lot, like it's very much this idea of prudent. Like the, there's sort of these four cardinal virtues that Cicero talks about, and I, I think it's great because those are you know he's pagan, he's pre-Christian in that sense. Like obviously Romans a religious society, 
in a sense that they've got piety towards their gods. But you know, the idea of having prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude is sort of a foundation for societies. Do you think that's kind of that foundation? Like those are four, in the Christian sense, those are four cardinal virtues, but the fact that they come from pre-Christian times, you know, that lends to their credibility as a universal set of, of principles that kind of everyone can take and are key to having like a normal working society where we, uh, again, we moderate, you know, things aren't always going to go our way and we have to deal with that sometimes and, and give way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think Christian democracy works in exactly the same way. It, it takes as its fundamental tenet <clears throat> that all human life matters um, and the way humans live their lives matter. Um, but it comes, as I said, Cicero believed this. Cicero talks beautifully about human dignity. So it works exactly the same way as the four cardinal virtues. It's something you can apprehend through reason if you're a reasonable person. Um, doesn't mean you will, doesn't mean everybody does, doesn't even mean that, that people who buy into Christianity and maybe do those things have actually reasoned to their way to why it's a reasonable thing to do, not just a, something you do because God tells you. Um, and that's, so it is called Christian democracy and it's based on Christian principles, but those principles are in some ways eternal and ubiquitous. And you can find those principles in most civilizations that are free and happy. Um, and that is the, the beauty in some ways of Christian democracy. Um, it's called that because its founders wanted to highlight that these things in the Western tradition um, derived in large part from Christianity, that liberal democracy derived in large part from Christianity. Uh, but it's just, as you say, they're universal values. Um, and they're in this strange way. Hum humanist conservatism um, has always been um, a little bit at odds with some other types of conservatism because it, it is much more comfortable with that kind of universal value of human dignity. Um, national conservatives dislike universal values, period. There is the national tradition and that's it. Um, fusionists tend to be quite fond of um, natural right, limited government as kind of a universal value. Um, but so that's really that kind of universal value is really what's well, it's supposed to make humanist conservatism distinct. It's where it gets its name, um, human dignity, and then human humanism. The idea that the human should be the center of civilization. That was kind of long-winded answer. Sorry. No, it's <laughs> meander through ancient Rome, and sometimes I find my way back. <laughs> hey, I love meandering through ancient Rome. Okay, <laughs> like anytime you want to take me on a trip through ancient Rome, I'm there. Well, I'm teaching a class on ancient Greece and Rome too, so if you get me on that <laughs> brainwave, I'll just go down it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, was I saying this to you? Like, I got this. Maybe it's uh, Katie, but like. Um, you know, running on representation, like Rome fell because of representation and, yeah. you know, the American Republic started because of a problem with representation and our current issues right now all kind of stem from representation. So we're, we're okay with, with talking about Rome on this podcast. And well, I, mean, was, there. I have a horrible poem, which I won't subject any human to that I once wrote, but at the end, I'm talking about ancient Rome, but, but at the end I say it, it comes down to the same question that all regimes come down to who's going to rule. Mm-hmm. And that's what bothers all of us, I think, um, more than anything, probably. Um, and I didn't talk about that in the article, but what really gets to the national conservatives is who's going to rule America. Um, so it really bothers um, the left is who should be ruling America. 
humanist conservatism that I tried to outline, the answer, who should be ruling America, it's, it's the community, the individual, the, the small platoons, the small towns, that's who should really be ruling America. Um, but I think uh, you're right, it's, the, it's kind of the eternal question of politics, who gets to divide up the pie and have the power. Well, so I can answer that question. I know the answer to that question. And we're going to talk about who the who those people are. It's the president. The president literally gets to divide up the pie and decide who's ruling because of the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929, when Congress relinquished its power to um, reapportion and they sent it to the executive. And now it's the executive's responsibility to kick it back to Congress if they want to change it. Now, Congress could just write a new bill and, you know, take it back. But at the at the current moment, it's the executive's job. Um, and as we know through studying the early antebellum period and through the Civil War, representation is how governments kind of maintain power. And we talk about even now with the House capped, gerrymandering, you know, is a big issue. Um, I watched you guys ever watch the show Upload? It's on Amazon Prime. It's a it's a quirky show. It, you know, it's more fun than it is serious. But um, the it's they upload. You're able to upload your consciousness into this afterlife. And this company, this major corporation, has now it's it's offering these uploads to people that like want to leave Earth. Like so, they're basically just killing themselves and they're going to upload. And they did this as a scam to trick people out of a specific district, okay? And there's this, this shot in the show where the CEO of this, like the evil CEO of the company has zoomed in on a congressional map and it's to this one little precinct. And, it, and you know, he, they were able to get 20 people to decide to leave Earth and go to this afterlife. So they lost their voting rights. And he turned that district blue, which turned the other district blue, which turned the state blue, which turned the country blue, which turned the globe blue. And it's like, that's, that's where power comes from is, you know, you're trying to get it, control it. And once you're in, you rule, right? And so the people that are about to rule us are running for office right now. Um, there's a caucus going on in Iowa, uh, along with some nasty weather. What do you think of this whole thing? You know, Trump is leading. Uh, Nikki Haley has made some surges over the last few weeks. She's doing really well in New Hampshire. She's she's up in Iowa. Vivek claims that he's going to surprise and shock the world. DeSantis is out there getting humiliated with, uh, you know, uh, uh, participation trophies by scammers. Uh, like, what's going to happen, Tyler? Uh, I mean, my prediction, which I could be wrong, is that Donald Trump will, will win the Iowa caucuses and Nikki Haley will, will come in second. I don't think Vivek is going to be surprising anybody. He's kind of like a knockoff Donald Trump. And I don't really know why you would vote for him over Donald Trump, to be frankly honest, <laughs> for a Donald Trump fan. Um, Ron DeSantis has won over nobody who was not already a fan of him before he started running for president, which is... Um, you know, I'm not a campaign expert, but that's not how you win a campaign <laughs> is by winning over the people who already liked you and nobody else. Um, Haley has made, as I think it's been kind of clear in the last couple of weeks, has made serious inroads to people who originally were not supporters of Nikki Haley. 
um, and who are now supporters of Nikki Haley. Donald Trump has a huge base um, that he's managed to keep. Um, and so the races, I think, at the end, just going to be between those two. Trump's the clear favorite, but Haley's strategy, um, and it could work, is if she wins New Hampshire, she presses second in Iowa, she goes into South Carolina, which is her home state strong, wins South Carolina. Then on Super Tuesday, if she sweeps every state with an open primary because independents come out to vote for her, I mean, it could be a serious fight. Um, Trump, of course, wouldn't be happy that independents and Democrats voting in the Republican primary are taking it away from him, but that's democracy. That's a much more democratic way probably than a closed primary. So, so do you think the fact that uh, Biden's not having primaries in a lot of these states is going to affect the independents, or do you think the fact that there are a couple, there's like one Democratic challenger in some, like like New Hampshire, right? There's the one Democratic challenger, and the camp Biden campaign is actually has a write-in uh, effort to get so that Joe Biden doesn't lose New Hampshire by a lot or win, you know, he, he wins it by a lot. Do, like, do you think that's going to affect the independents? Yeah, I think it will affect the because the independents, I think, are going to be less inclined to vote in the Democratic primary. He has a challenger. It's not a serious challenger. Um, it would be really shocking if somehow Joe Biden doesn't end up being the Democratic nominee. If polls are to be believed, a lot of independents wouldn't be really, really sad if Joe Biden ended up being the Democratic nominee. Um, but independents would be very, very sad if Donald Trump ended up being the nominee for the Republican Party. Um, that's kind of an interesting dynamic race. Of course, you never get to see Donald Trump debate Nikki Haley, but that may be working in Nikki Haley's favor. We'll see if she wins or not. Um, so I, th I think, yeah, I think most independents are probably going to be voting in the Republican primary. Could be wrong. Um, certainly, it seems the more interesting primary to vote in, though. So where do you see these candidates as far as on, on this natural, natu uh, national and humanist conservative, right? Like, where where do these guys fall? I mean, Vivek is, he's a national conservative, right? No. Uh, Trump is a national conservative. No. Where does Nikki Haley and DeSantis fall? DeSantis, I think, is um, more or less a national conservative, but a much um, I kind of a much higher brow version of national conservatism. I mean, it doesn't have to be sort of angry screaming at change. It can be um, a lot more nuanced. But DeSantis's policies, which kind of seek to sort of seize control of the state university system and remake it. Um, and sure, they are state universities, but you do have to think these, these are universities in small towns, um, in places. These are in universities that are part of communities, and he is robbing the community of the ability to control the university and giving it instead to um, the state legislature. Um, and a lot of other policies like that, to me, indicate that his impulse tends towards kind of the national conservative thing. Now, last couple of weeks, he's been talking very differently than he's talked for the last couple of years, I guess, trying to try something new so he could win, which makes me think maybe he's he's just whatever one of these it takes, which is probably true of a lot of them, to be honest. Nikki Haley, um, I think, is more or less a fusionist, plain and simple. Um, She's kind of libertarian. She's got a little bit of a libertarian in her. She's got a little bit of the Christian right in her. Um, her foreign policy is, is um, fairly um, fusionist, too. She's sort of ardently um, and aggressively 
anti-tyranny, but, but foreign policy is kind of difficult to put on the spectrum. Nationalists tend to be isolationist. Fusionists tend to be a little more interventionist. But um, now, I am, though she says things that are interesting, really, though, about um, abortion, for instance. Her views on abortion are not a normal Republican's views on abortion. Um, not saying that makes her a humanist conservative, but it is certainly an interesting repudiation of the Christian right, which could tend that way over time, maybe to something like humanist conservatism, which is a little more pluralist. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I'd say DeSantis, Vivek, uh, Trump, nationalists, Haley, a fusionist. Um, the plural humanists don't really have a, a candidate. I haven't had a candidate in a Republican primary in a long time, to be fair to them. Um, but Romney probably is, but he wasn't when he ran. So, do you think that's just because people haven't been really thinking about these ideas, or you know, there hasn't been kind of a clear split? I guess, you know, before Trump, pretty much the the most popular national conservative was Pat Buchanan, as you said. Like, yeah. it, it was kind of all fusionist, and so everyone kind of went along to get get along to get yeah. along to get along. Um, yeah. I think that's right. I think the nationalists take up all the, in some ways, the nationalists and the humanist conservatives are going to be competing for the same market. It's going to be rural voters. It's going to be working class voters. It's going to be people who are maybe center to center left on economics and center to center right on social issues, which is a, a demographic that has been voting for Donald Trump. Um, and so the question is, how do you win those people over from Donald Trump to this other vision? Um, and they haven't been in the Republican Party for very long either. So this makes it an interesting time in that regard. The humanist conservatives in America probably were blue dog Democrats for most of the 20th century. Because um, that's where these certain these kind of rural working, white working class voters were. Um, now that they're in the Republican Party, only the nationalists are appealing to them. But I think absolutely. And I this was in the article. Um, it was cut because it was a very, very long article when I submitted it. Um, the, the, the humanist conservatives have a real chance, I think, to undercut the nationalist by appealing to their same voters in the same congressional districts and the same electoral districts. Do you think it's the kind of position that would bring people along to that are outside of the, Demo the Republican Party or the, Dem you know, like you said, they were blue dog Democrats. Like there's, you know, there there was part of that democratic coalition that's kind of shifted like do you think there's more on the democratic side yeah absolutely i mean so as i think humanist conservatism its natural base is probably that sort of like i said center to center left on economics center right on social issues um but also I, the article i know has been um read by a lot of professors and voters in suburbia who have emailed me telling me that they're big fans of it um and so it also has clear um, I think, appeal to a certain sort of suburban voter who wants stability, um, who does think that maybe the, some of our cultural problems need to be addressed, but who also um, loves democracy and loves pluralism. The catch is, um, like I said, the Demosthenes quote, uh, delivery, delivery, delivery. Humanist conservatism, if it wants to undercut nationalism, has to be pitched differently in different districts. It's it's a broad it's like all ideological camps, it's going to have to be a little broad. You're going to have the ones who are a little more populist, a little more fiery, a little more radically wanting to reform the system in line with humanist conservatism. 
Um, those are not going to be the ones probably who are killing it in the suburbs where the people tend to be affluent and pretty happy with them, the way the economy is working and things like that. Well, so I'll push back on you there a little bit. And I'll, I'll say that as somebody who lives in those suburbs and goes to birthday parties of parents with their kids and have conversations about this. And the one thing that I, I get from people is they want, they want reform. Like they're not happy. They are absolutely not happy with thing, where things are. Even the ones that are doing well don't feel comfortable because they just feel this enormous amount of pressure of almost failure from their government. Um, and, you know, you say that it's it's got to be a broad coalition uh, yeah. of different ideas and stuff. And I 100% I agree with that. But as we learn through government and how governments maintain power and, and longevity, there has to be some sort of central point of authority or this idea, a central idea to hold those broad coalitions together. Yeah, yeah and it's, I, I tried to say in the article, humanist conservatism's broad idea um, is this idea that, that people should be, the government should be helping and empowering people to live fulfilling lives. Doesn't mean we're gonna give you a fulfilling life. Government can't do that, but government can try to create spaces in which humans can have fulfilling lives. Um, to me, that's the, 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 the real bread and butter of humanist conservatism. Um, I suppose I meant when I was talking about the suburbs and rural areas is the suburbs, um, it's maybe more a matter of how you, how you pitch it. They want reform, but they like a more orderly vision of reform, I suppose you might say, um, as opposed to rural areas who are voting for Donald Trump, who clearly want something with a little more, I don't know, cattiness, oomph to, I don't know exactly how you would put it. Something a little wilder. Well, look, I, <laughs> I talk to a lot of, you know, Trump supporters, MAGA supporters, and I, you know, I, I think that's an unfair rap that a lot of them get because there is this small group of them that are very radical. I don't think a lot of them are as radical as we see. And I think that the key is, is you talk about the suburbs, they want uh, the suburbs and want little, a little bit more orderly reform. And, you know, the other people want, you know, something a little bit more radical. I think what both groups want is just actual plan. Like they yeah. want an actual plan for reform and like a step-by-step -step process to get it done to like move the needle forward for our, essentially for our children and our grandchildren, because, you know, we're all going to be out of here one day, you know, like we got to leave something behind when we go. Um, and I think that, you know, John and I, you know, we're running on congress. He's, he's running on congressional reform, right? Like the central point of the the idea, and I got this from, you know, knocking doors in Virginia over and over again, you know, I would ask, what do you think about Congress? I don't like Congress. What would you think about a a, a candidate running on congressional reform? Uh, you know, the first few, first year or so, people would push back and they would go, nothing can change, da, da, da. But then when I started to formulate an idea and a plan of what congressional reform would look like, and I started to pitch it to people, people like it. They're like, okay, I can give it. Maybe they disagree with some of the reform policies, but just being able to have it, just by putting out a actual thought process on it allows people to now come into that thought process and debate but, it. No, that makes sense. I think, yeah, I mean, that's a great campaign. But like, you know, different issues will appeal to different districts. So for instance, in my district, the big thing is always jobs. Um, 
Congressional reform would be great, but they're losing jobs. So you have to talk about jobs constantly. But well, they do both things within the ambit of humanist conservatism, I would say. They have the same underlying principle behind them. It's just a matter of speaking to each district with the problem that most, at least in the voter's mind, urgently faces them. All the problems are related. That's how these things go in some ways. Um, but you emphasize different bits in different places, and that's how you win a national campaign, and that's how you, you know, you take over a party and so on. Well, the so hold on, I'm thinking the uh the reform in the different if they want jobs, right? The reform yeah. will help that because right now, if we analyze Congress, we realize that the executive has too much power. The people aren't represented. So if congressional reform is to balance power between the state, the Fed, and the people, and then also to return power to people so they can kind of make their own decisions, now in that community that's looking for jobs, maybe you're not able to provide jobs. But what you are able to provide is opportunity for those people to, to now fix that problem on their own. Right. Move moving right. power down so they can solve it on themselves, because that's what I think people want more than anything. They don't want to be ruled. Right. They actually want to have the power to to make change on their own. And so what you need is you need a movement, a broad movement with that central point, that central idea that allows candidates to know like. It should encourage candidates that have lived in their district for a long period of time, that know the people, that know the problems, so they can study reform and then talk to their district about how reform will help them and how reform will fix these day-to-day -day problems, you know, like specifically immigration. Like immigration is a big problem in border states, right? And now because border states are shipping immigrants all across the country, now it's a problem everywhere else. And so- Congressional reform could help that, right? Like the Apportionment Act could help that. You know, there's a lot of different things that can go into helping this and being able to have candidates that run on that and pull that idea together. I think uh, maybe, maybe it'll do something. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm very hopeful. So I agree. So I hope. Yeah. And I definitely hope it works in Northern Virginia. So, Yeah. Well, so do so so do I and John and I. <laughs> Very much. I mean, actually, going back to the border, like you see that now, where some of those people that are Democrat that have to toe the party line are now breaking from the party line again because it's getting so bad, and like, yeah, it just gets back to like you know they they need to represent their people better rather than their uh, their national party. Yeah. So back to. Haley, DeSantis. DeSantis, you mentioned, is kind of saying things that he hasn't said in years, right? Yeah. And he's kind of sounding a little bit more like going after Trump, like yeah. Haley. Why can't, why can't anybody just see that everybody else should drop out and support Haley and then Trump isn't the problem anymore? Like, I think, like, you just consolidate power. <laughs> Forgetting, why is it most people run for president? I mean, it's, I mean, sure, I think a lot of them think they can help the country, um, but also a lot of them think very well of themselves. And they think that they are the ones who can most help the country. I don't think you can get that far if you don't think that. 
if yeah. you don't really believe that you are the one who could fix it and everybody else cannot and so they don't want to give it up to somebody else who they don't think is going to be as good i mean maybe that's a charitable way of looking at it um but you're right santis has no chance chris christie had had no chance and he dropped he did the right thing and he dropped out but he didn't he didn't endorse Haley, and he took a shot at her on the way out the door and somebody yeah. their whole spiel is about defeating trump to take a shot at the person who's best positioned to defeat trump it's counterintuitive it doesn't make any sense no but at the end of the day i mean who are his voters going to vote for Haley. Haley. i mean who, who else could they vote for i mean if you're voting I mean, if you're voting for chris christie who's like the most least popular guy of the republican party these days i feel like you're gonna vote for the thing that's least like trump and the prime left in the primary and you're probably not gonna stay home because you feel really passionately about not donald trump mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go vote for Haley, whatever chris christie thinks um and that's a pretty big that would be a pretty big bump for her um, in the polls. And the last poll showed her pretty close to within the margin of error of Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Yeah. Chris Sununu, one of the most popular governors in America, basically running for president alongside her, who clearly deserves a cabinet appointment if she wins. Um, hey, can anybody tell me how many representatives the New Hampshire legislature has? Oh, New Hampshire has 400. Wow. One of the most represented states in the in the union right there. And he and and the governor of that state is working with Nikki Haley. I mean, come on, we got a win right there. <laughs> now, if he gets the cabinet appointment, can he be the one in charge of uh, rallying Congress to uh, write a new apportionment bill? <laughs> give him the Census Bureau. Give him the chief of the Census Bureau. That's his. Uh... <laughs> Hey. Yeah, this, actually, this has made me think that most state legislatures should probably have bigger houses than they do too actually almost every single state legislature in the united states should have a bigger house than it has the the virginia state legislature has been capped almost as long as the uh or hasn't been expanded almost as long as the federal uh house we're i think we're at a hundred are we at a hundred I don't know the numbers off the top. representatives and 40 state senators. Okay, so 100. But the population has also tripled in the state of Virginia since the last time that we added representation. So, so it's also capped at 100. And I've just been meeting with a lot of people um, who work in state politics. Um, we seem slightly disenchanted with how many representatives, for instance, my county has, which is a very large county. But there's uh, the, the way the districts work, we don't have any representatives that are just our own there's only a hundred they have to be stretched in all these ways even though we're the largest city in the region doesn't have its own representative um yeah that's a fair point i've always thought about uncapping the house at the national level but and in fact starting at the states is probably more likely but on the other hand less people are yeah it's an easier there. it's an easier push and that goes back to like the states being their own laboratories of democracy like if you could right yeah uncap one of those a state that needs to be uncapped like virginia and then show that it works and that you're everything yeah. and i don't know if you go to people and you say do you know our state house only has 100 state representatives for however many million people i'll be like wow no <laughs> i don't know i think they think that was too little just on the face of it well uh, i think i've told this story on the pod before but i i ran into abigail spamberger at an event and this was before she had announced to run for governor, but the rumor was out there. And so when I talked to her, I, I said, hey, I, 
I hear you, you're, there's a rumor you're going to run for governor. Can I make a suggestion? Um, expand the uh, legislature of Virginia. I was like, it's too small because I had asked her a question about uncapping the, the house, the federal house and everything. So we were already kind of on that topic. I said, well, if you're going to run for governor, then you should do this at the state level. And I, I told her, I said, Virginians lead. George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson. There is a history here, oh. and we, we could lead the union again if you ran for governor under a platform of expanding the house. <laughs> I haven't seen it on our website yet, though. <laughs> well, Jeff, as you and I were discussing it at the website, it's, you know, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the website is difficult. Please. <laughs> Did you promise they should think about it or something? Um, no, no. Uh, she she's a good politician. She didn't make any promises. <laughs> no, fair enough. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm trying to think who uncapping would help politically. It's impossible to say. Well, so, but that's it. Will help the people. Like at the end of the oh, day, yeah, it but, will help average. You have to look at it from the standpoint of a political party. They want a majority, and they're afraid of losing their majority. So, look, it's what it's going to do is it's going to open up space for additional political parties. Okay, they're really and not going to like that, Jeff. I <laughs> know they're not going to like that. But you know what? At the end of the day, this is this is the thing that I've I've understood and about history is like if you are in a position of power, and there is always a moment in history where that power tips. And you are now going downhill. And it's only a matter of time before somebody else replaces you on the top of the hill. If you're the Republican and Democratic Party, that moment has already happened. You just haven't realized it yet. And you can get on board with the reform so you can remain on the top of that hill. Or you can fight it and end up disappearing. Because, you know, I think that they could survive and expand. The Both the Republican and the Democratic Party, I think, overall would survive an expansion of the House. Right. It, it would be new parties to enter the mold. But I think that because they have the long, the, the you know, the history with them, I think that overall you're not going to lose either one of those. And over time, it'll actually be consolidated back into two parties again anyways, which is just the way that things flow. And I just think it's just the most reasonable thing for everybody on the planet to do. <laughs> I agree. I'm just saying, if you want it to happen, you have to sell it to like a Democratic House and Senate as this is going to get you more Democratic representatives. Well, you can't make that promise to both parties, though. Well, well yeah, you, you have, you have to go for you have to go for whoever's in charge, probably. Is when it comes it's, down. it's really about having more competitive seats. Like it would unlock a lot of those. Even like really Virginia, would. Nigeria, I mean, that's what it would do in practice. It would have a lot more competitive seats, um, and you'd have a lot more representative. I mean, like Jeff says, you'd actually have the people representatives represented. So, like particular regions of states, rather than like two regions combined in rural states or something, would have their own rep. Um, which would be very nice, I think. Um, my house, my member of the House of Representatives, I share him with Southern Kentucky. Eastern and Southern Kentucky are fairly different. It'd be nice to have a representative from just Eastern Kentucky. I actually think most Eastern Kentuckians would agree with me, but I don't know if my representative would. <laughs> you know, I just, I just got a, I just got a wild idea. So while we're uncapping the House, what we should do is we should divide all the states, and that way we expand the Senate as well. By giving, we divide all the states in half, 
And that way we give each, essentially each state gets two more representatives, but we're breaking them apart for governing purposes, right? So now instead of a, you know 50 states, you've got 100 states, um, you got 200 senators, and now you got 870 uh, House of Representatives. The government's overwhelmed and overcapacity. You need more people to run the day-to-day -day business of the government. And I think you got a solution there. Yeah. I'm not I'm not as on board with that one, Jeff. <laughs> hey, that's 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 just an off-the-cuff idea. I don't know about dividing all of the states, but I know like some of them states more, should be divided. Some of them seem more divisible. Texas and California, for instance, seem very divisible to me. Um a lot of states like Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, I don't really know why you would divide those. Like they seem like they're reasonably sized. Because you need them big enough, too, that you can populate the state government relatively easily with competent yeah. stuff. And I don't know. And also, um, and this is the, the, the philosophic conservative in me, a lot of states have their own political tradition and history that they've developed over time. I hate to mess with it. Well, I think, I mean, look, again, I'm not seriously proposing we divide all the states, but in theory, like in that idea, if, if you're going to let See, it's things like that that stop progress, you know, and it's like, again, conservatives don't necessarily want progress all the time. Sometimes we want things to stay the way that they are. And I get that. But change happens whether we want it or not. And I think, you know, just having a mechanism to slow the progress is, you know, or manage the progress is is the right right way. And when you're talking about traditions and stuff, it's like, OK, you do have these traditions. They are important. Then find a way to weave them into the new thing. Right. Well, don't let them don't let them die. You're not, I'm not I'm not a revolution guy. I if you talk to my wife, I don't throw anything away. I can't let go of things. OK, I don't know when I'm going to need it. I maybe when I'm 75, I want to look at that piece of scrap piece of paper that I wrote a note on and just remember the memory. You know, like my wife wants me to throw it in the trash, but I want to keep it. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, like you can fix things. You know, my basement flooded this weekend. You know, I'm, I'm going to repair the basement. I didn't buy a new house. Okay. <laughs> you no, could do the, the main point. model where they just, they got, they became a new state and they just took the old courthouse, state house from Massachusetts and built it in the same brick by brick. You know, that that's, I think it, you probably just, what you do is you sort of in a Bitcoin term, you'd fork your brand, your, uh, your database where you just have, you take the, the same thing and just split it, make two carbon copies and then. Let them run wild from that and start their own traditions like, you know, or, or maybe more uh, organically like apple trees or something. You just kind of you graft off uh, one variety and plant it in the ground and then you've got two different apple trees and you see where they grow. There are there, now parts of states might want to split and that could be in West Virginia wanted to leave Virginia. Well, and California wants to go into like four different states. Like, I mean, like there's been efforts. Makes a lot of sense, probably, if you're a Californian. I would mm -hmm. much rather. Um, and uh, isn't Washington State the same kind of, or no, Texas is their own little, I guess they're trying to secede again. Well, they're always thinking about it, I think, <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> Since the 1850s, they just keep floating the idea. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Part of Texas's tradition is that they used to be their own nation, and they're not entirely sure that that was a, a better deal. I think. Yeah, I definitely think that I think California should be split into at least three or four states now. 
Like now I'm really thinking about this. I can't let it go now. <laughs> and proposals. You can go on the internet. You can look up the, the proposals of the split up California. Yeah. I'm not from California. I don't remember the nuances of all of them, but in fact, I've only ever been in the LA airport, which I don't even really think counts as visiting California. <laughs> um, had a veggie burger, which I think is like <laughs> this California with a glass of wine, which is as California as you could get in some ways, I think, but <laughs> at an airport. So uh, before we get out of here, I want to go back real quick to DeSantis. And you mentioned um, he he's he's got to believe that he's the guy, right? Like in order to be in that position, it, like being president of the United States is the hardest job in the world. Like hands no. down, it's the hardest job in the world. And running for president of the United States is probably the second hardest job in the world. And so yeah. like, in order to, to think that you're going to win, you have to believe that over you can overcome pretty much any obstacle you can work your right work your way through any problem and and that is a quality to be admired in these people to be honest with you but at the same time i think what they need to do is hire better people in their inner circle that they can trust to go to them and be like you know what the time is now get out and support um hey like if you're if you're really as afraid of Donald Trump as you claim you are, if you really yeah. believe that he is the threat to democracy or to America as you say he is, then get out and support the candidate who can who is best positioned to defeat him. And and I think this is the thing that gets overlooked more than anything, especially on the conservative side, is she's the best candidate suited to defeat Joe Biden. Okay, yeah. even more than Donald Trump. And if you if you're a Trump supporter because you don't like Joe Biden or because you you you're you don't like what the crazy left wing Democrats are doing, then you should be behind Nikki Haley as well. I think DeSantis is in a unique position where a lot of people thought this was his to lose, and it turned out he lost it. Um, Probably anyway. So I, I would be really surprised if he has a like a shocking victory tomorrow. Um, and I think a lot of people who work for him. You know, they they went working for him, really believing that he was going to be the next president of the United States. And as much as he wants to be president, they want to work for the next president of the United States. Um, and so I think it's hard for them to let go of their dream too. Um, and given how badly his campaign has went, it is not evident to me that Nikki Haley or Donald Trump would have any interest in hiring anybody who's worked on the DeSantis campaign. Well, He's that... like the Jeb Bush of 2024. I mean, it's just been pitiful. It's like watching a sick puppy. I mean, in a, in a way, that's bad leadership. That means he hired a bad team. He's oh, got he, the, he, well, I mean, I think it's very evident he hired a bad team. He's had a horrible social media presence. His campaign has been awful. His strategy has been terrible. It's been one of the worst-ran campaigns I've seen in years. But, you know, I mean, he does have a bad team. But, um, <laughs> well, and, and he's had to fire several people for, like, posting anti-Semitic things on Twitter. And so, I mean, when the... When the people who work for you become baggage, then you've clearly done something wrong. <laughs> the only baggage being born on a campaign should be the candidates, which they're inevitably going to have some. I mean, there's just yeah. no... and it makes him look bad. It makes him look like he doesn't mind anti-Semitism and stuff like this, which I'm sure he does. I don't think Ron DeSantis is a, a racist or anything. But... 
Yeah. I think he's just a really, really smart guy trying to be a really, really popular guy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's up at the end of the day, he's a policy wonk. I was once at a fundraiser or not a fundraiser, um, a gala in Florida and Ron DeSantis was a, a speaker at it. And I remember watching people rushing to take their photo with him. And it struck me as I was watching this, that one, he was not very good at talking to them. He was not very likable. Um, and they all wanted their photo with him because they really liked the things he had done policy-wise. But he, as an individual, had no particular appeal. And uh, and I think that's kind of been, been what's proven. And at the end of the day, policy does not win a presidential campaign. Um, be nice if it did, maybe, but I don't think policy has won a campaign since maybe ever. So I don't, I don't really think... <laughs> Not a presidential campaign policy can sometimes win a local campaign i think but at the end of the day it's all about messaging and policy is kind of part of the messaging but look what i did is is not the same thing you know i did this great thing in florida look at that and voters are like i don't want to look at that i don't read the newspaper <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> and so at the end of the day ron DeSantis just yeah Actually, I said he was the Jeb Bush of 2024. I actually think he's the Elizabeth Warren of 2024, a right-wing policy wonk who people who really love following that kind of stuff are crazy about, but the average voter, way over their heads. And, not on a, and that's on him, because a good politician should be able to sell complex things to people who don't have the time to study them for a living. Mm -hmm. They should be able to bring politics to the people. It's not the job of the people to come up to where the politicians are. I think that's a problem we make all the time. They don't do this for a living and they shouldn't have to. Mm. You make very good points. Very good points. Uh, Tyler, I appreciate you coming back on the show. This was- Oh, thank I, you guys so much I for could, having me. We could chat all day. Yeah. So um, where can people follow you? Where can they find you? Where can they read you? Um, I'm on Twitter as Jeffrey Tyler Sick. Um, I have a website whose URL I'm linking on, but you can find that on my Twitter. Um, and so that website links to everything I've written. Um, that's worth reading anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, some things don't make it. Um, it's a selected list of commentary. <laughs> but, I don't know how other people feel. Sometimes I, I write something, think it's really good. I send it off, it comes out and I read it and I think, hmm, maybe I should have sat on that for a couple of months before I sent it anywhere. But oh, well. um, it happens. Um, We've so, all been there. Um, and thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks so much to Tyler for coming back on the show. Uh, it was a really wonderful discussion. And you know, anytime you're dropping Cicero on an article, I'm listening, and uh, I think it's it's really it, it again. Like you know, we always talk about there are issues with kind of representation, and I feel like the the different branches of conservative don't really represent my take on it. So it's good to to find like something that actually combines them in sort of a way that that I think I agree with. Um, and I think it's it was it, you know it's definitely a great read. His website, you know, I, I looked it up as we were talking, we were waiting for it. It's jtylersick.com, but we'll have that in the show notes so you can find all of his work and uh, what I mean what do you think Jeff uh I thought it was fantastic you know I'm I'm a big fan I love I mean anybody that wants to talk about John Quincy Adams conservative movements new ideas like I mean we got in the weeds about apportionment right I mean that was 
I, I'm in heaven here. <laughs> so we're gonna have a, we're gonna expand your house and put a pool in there. We're gonna expand the Virginia house and get some more people and <laughs> or expand our federal house. But uh, yeah, again, thank you, Tyler, for coming on. Jeff, you're on Twitter, I believe. Jay Mayhew twenty eight. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Beatty for us, and Instagram and YouTube and. Uh, Facebook, so you can find us, and then Beattyforward.us or Beattyforus.com if that's any easier. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and with that, we'll see you next week. Peace and love. <laughs>